Welcome to Breaker Culture Weekly. The guys from BreakerCulture.com help pull back the curtains and give you insight into the hobby. Sit back and enjoy interviews, product breakdowns, and hobby analysis so you can get your edge in the marketplace. And now, to the show. What's going on, folks? Ty from Breaker Culture, proud members of the Bench Clear Media team. Go check us out at benchclear.us for all of our great content channels episodes we are averaging two fresh new episodes a day for you across all of our content providers um some great stuff so be sure to check us out now i know we've had lots of conversations about the nuances between sports card investing and collecting and the hobbyist traditionalist versus the new modern collector the flipper you name it blah 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 right well Today, I have a fascinating conversation with the CEO of Collectible.com. His name is Ezra Levine. And if you haven't haven't heard of Collectible, you're going to hear about it because it it is making serious waves within the hobby by providing fractional ownership in in massive, rare, powerful sports cards, vintage cards, wax, groups of cards. It is incredible. So what happens is IPOs are initiated and you have the ability to go buy fractional fractional shares in that card. For instance, this morning I logged in because I knew the Jordan rookie, PSA 10 Fleer rookie was going out for IPO today and I popped on when the IPO went live to buy some shares and within minutes, those $10 shares were bought up across the board and uh, I actually didn't even get mine in. It took me about 12 minutes to get registered and everything else set up and I was late to the game. But just the way the trend of the hobby and everything, I, I just, I love the idea. And Ezra is, is one sharp dude, guys. I'm going to tell you right now, he knows what he's doing. He's got a great background, was born into the sports car world, so has a great perspective around sports cards, thanks to his dad. And uh, I think you're going to be fascinated by his vision for this and his vision for where collectible fits within the hobby. So enjoy the conversation with Ezra. It is a uh, it is perfect timing for everything happening in the hobby right now. So anyway, before we jump into that, I'll remind you to go check out our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Click the link in the show notes, benchclear.us forward slash ExpressVPN. I keep reminding you guys, but it's it's as important as ever. You cannot browse the net. You can't go to your eBay sites, your websites, your PayPal, your squares, your Venmos, all that stuff that you just take for granted your banks, without protecting yourself. And an easy way to do that is just to sign into a VPN. A VPN protects you, it shields you, adds another layer, scrambles the data so your passwords and your data can't be identified and found out. Um, And it's super easy. You click the link, you sign up, and a little app pops up on your Windows PC or your Mac PC, and you just click, hey, I wanna sign into my VPN, and it connects you to the nearest network, and you're protected. And it allows you to browse safely with a little peace of mind, knowing that, you know what, you're not exposed every time you go click on something. So, again, I've been hacked. I know lots of folks are, are have been hacked in the past. I mean, shoot, we just had another medical breach this morning. Massive medical breach. One of the largest in the nation's history. Hacking is an all-time high. So, protect yourself. ExpressVPN. Go click the link in the show notes. BenchClear.us forward slash ExpressVPN. All right? Enjoy the conversation with Ezra around fractional sports card ownership.
Hey, what's going on, Ezra? How you doing, man? How you doing? What's going on, Ty? Oh, you know, we're sitting here 45 minutes before the uh, first debate. You and I are anxious, ready to talk about uh, politics. You ready to do this? Ready to do it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks for jumping on the show tonight, man. I've been excited about talking about collectible and everything you guys are doing for, for a few weeks now. So so are you you're in New York City, right? Are you in the city? I'm in, I'm in New York City, New York City. Okay. Are you, uh, I grew up here. I was uh, I was raised here. I grew up here from age three all the way through college, and then I went to the University of Michigan. Go blue! I like to think that I'm the Michigan football curse. From the time that I got on campus, I think we're 0 and 15 against OSU. But uh, I went to Michigan, came back home to New York, and I live uh, here with my wife and my son. And we've been here ever since I graduated college. That's awesome. I've heard some rumors of a Desmond Howard jersey being the framed item in your your one year old son bedroom. That's right. That that is right. And I got I have a Michigan helmet over here to my back left over there. So there you go. You know I I I don't know if uh, if if our team loves me as much as I love it. But uh, no, it's 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 a passion of mine. Sports. I, I've grown up a huge sports fan, having grown up here in New York. Diehard Yankees fan, Knicks fan, unfortunately, Rangers, Giants, Michigan. So I've been I've been a diehard sports fan my, my entire life, and it's fun to be able to marry your career with something mm-hmm. that you genuinely enjoy. Oh, absolutely. So how how does a New Yorker end up falling in love with Michigan? I'm really curious about that. Is that a family thing? No, look, I, I never I was never a big Michigan fan growing up. Right, I didn't really have a college football team when I applied to the school. And I got accepted. I figured, look, I'm going to be going to this school for four years. I might as well dive right into it. I happened <laughs> to go on campus, and we had a really respectable program. My, my, my freshman year, I think we were ranked number two in the country. And then my sophomore year is where it all went downhill. We were ranked, I believe, two uh, in the country going into the season. Our opening day was against Appalachian State when Michigan was some of, sort of like 40-point um, – you know, favorites against Appalachian State. We paid them a million dollars to come to our campus to play us, hoping it was going to be a trouncing opening day, 72 to nothing score. And they beat us. They beat us. So that really shattered my entire sophomore year at Michigan. And ever since then, it went from the Lloyd Carr era to the Rich Rodriguez era, and it all went downhill from there. Oh, my goodness. So that, that ended up costing you a lot more than a million dollars. That's what you're saying, huh? <laughs> it did. It did. It's oh, it. my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So would you would you err on the side of Michigan football or would you go to Michigan basketball games if you had the choice? What's kind of your preference? The basketball program is really good. It's become a basketball school. I hate to say this. I mean, look, I, I went to the final four when we lost to Louisville. I was there in Atlanta. You know, it's, it's nice to have multiple programs who are, you know, who are strong. Actually, our number one program at Michigan is not football. It's not basketball. It's hockey. We have a dominant hockey team, dominant. And wow. I'll say if anyone winds up in Ann Arbor in the winter, my number one recommendation is to go to a Michigan hockey stadium, right? Oh, to go into Yost Arena. It's a small, intimate collegiate feel. They pack you in, coordinated chance the entire time. You're right on the ice. It's really a very cool sports experience. Hmm. There you go. You're talking to a guy from Kansas City. I don't. I don't see ice rinks around here, so it's, right. it's a foreign language. Right. So you're you're a Royals guy, I assume. I am. I'm a Royals. Royals. We we've adopted the Nuggets as our basketball team. It's okay. proximity wise, 
pro- probably the second closest. Oklahoma City yeah. is the closer one. But yeah, yeah, that's uh, those are our three teams, and we got to go St. Louis Blues. Obviously, it's Missouri. Four. 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 Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so obviously you, you mentioned Yankees. As we were getting ready to start this, you saw Aaron Judge back, right? Hit a two-run homer first inning. Yeah, I've got it up here. They're up 3 nothing in the bottom of the third. It's been, it's been a weird year for the Yankees. It seems like they're all or nothing. When when one of the guys are hitting, they, they score 15 runs. And then when, you know, Judge and Sanchez are out or Stanton gets hurt for the 17th time in a season, it just feels yeah. like they, they can't score a run. But uh, – so, so let's just hope that they get hot at the right time here. It's all it takes in baseball is a couple hot, you know, streaks, a win here and there, and you're back in business. No kid, I would you are you are you a fan of the new? Actually, I said that on my son this afternoon was looking at the rules. I didn't realize it's best of three, best of five, best of seven, and then seven in the World Series. Are you a fan of that kind of new structure? Or would you? No, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of of having more, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, teams and cities engaged for longer. I think yeah. it's cool that they're, you know, like the Marlins are in it all of a sudden. I can't believe the Marlins are in the playoffs. I feel like the Marlins, you know, like we're, we're, we're a bottom of the barrel team. Everyone's, you know, knocking on Derek Jeter for gutting the entire franchise. I, I can't believe yeah. they're in the playoffs, right? So it's it's cool to have more cities and more teams and to see some of these young guys, right? Like, you know, have, yeah. like you see the White Sox in the playoffs, right? Like it's just cool to see these, these young studs who have a chance to yeah. shine on the postseason stage who probably wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, it's a little, as a traditionalist, as, as someone who, you know, grew up in baseball and you just kind of understand the structure, it's a, it's just different. It's weird, but uh, it's it's fun to see. It's fun to, and look, as a Yankee fan, I, we finished, I think, fifth or sixth. So if we didn't change these rules, we'd be out of the playoffs right now. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, it's funny, right? As a, as a hobbyist, right, in the sports card hobby, it's hard not to like, more teams making the, the playoffs. Right. There's right. more rookies in there, right? right. More young That's guys right. that probably wouldn't have had a shot two or three years from now. So, hey, I'll, I'll take right. it. I'll take it, which is it was probably a good transition point to kind of the hobby in general. I'd love to right. know your story, right? Obviously, CEO, founder of Collectible, which we'll talk about fractional ownership, all the cool stuff that yeah. is pretty hip in the sports car world. But what is your background with sports cards and kind of how did you get into the hobby? Yeah, so I, I started when I was born, pretty much. My dad uh, has been in the hobby forever. He collected mantle stuff, Kofax stuff, comic books, old programs. So I was always surrounded by it. I remember going to the Nationals a couple times as a kid. Yeah. And you know, my, my, my dad would always say, I'll never forget this. He's like, I've made so much more money in the hobby than I ever did in the stock market. And I never really took him seriously until you know, I just started to learn a lot more about the industry. My, my personal background is like probably every other kid in America. I collected and traded baseball cards with all my friends. Yep. I remember being at summer camp and my parents, were, you know, for, for a gift, they'd send up, you know, a box of baseball cards. And it was, it was the most exciting thing in the world to open the box and, and show off who you, who you had and trade them with your friends. It was great. Yeah. And then like, like every other kid who grew up in the 90s, I, I had this dream that my cards were going to be you know, sort of minting me a fortune when I got older, only to find out that they're completely worthless. So I'm sure a very common story with a lot of other people as I, I lost interest over time, you know, as I got in my teenage years and like, I just, I kind of forgot all about this sports card thing until, until the past couple of years when it's been really exciting to see it take off again. It's been really excited to see some of the innovation happening, to see some of the right sizing of production to yeah. some of the, yeah, it's just, it's a really exciting time to be in the hobby. And, 
Yeah, there, there are a lot of other people, and I'm, I'm sure this is going to come up. There are a lot of people who right now who think we're in this asset bubble. Everything's overly inflated. And, but you can also find a lot of other people who think that this industry is just getting started. And, you know, what, what I love about it is, is that's what makes a market, right? Like, like that's what makes something fun. People have different of opinions. Some people think it'll go up. Some people think it'll go down. But, and I don't think anyone really knows. But I think it's an, an exciting time to be a part of it. I think there's a lot of innovation happening, a lot of exciting things happening. I think there's a gigantic opportunity to, you know, clean up some of the bad actors in the space, to eliminate a lot of the forgeries, a lot of the trimming, just with, with, with new entrants, with new technology, with a new infusion of capital coming into the industry. I think it's just a, a really exciting time to be part of it all. I love it. You're passionate. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm be passionate about it, right? I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot to be passionate about. You know, uh, it's sports. It's with 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 as much nonsense as there is going on in this world right now, right? I mean, you got to hang on to sports. Sports is the one unifier of this country. It's the one unifier of the world. It's very exciting, right? So, and it, it just so happens that we, you know, you and I get to do this for a living or for you know for for our hobby also. So, yeah. it's uh, there's a lot to be excited about. And I'm excited about collectibles opportunity. We can talk about that in a little bit, but. Yeah, I'm generally very excited for this industry at large. Hundred percent, hundred percent. We'll dig into a lot of these components here in a second. So, real quick, growing up, then who'd you PC? Did you PC anybody in particular? Was it all Yankees all the time for you? Was there anybody kind of? I, I was a big Yankee collector. I was. Well, I, look, I grew up. I grew up here uh, in the yeah. you know not in the golden years originally of Yankee baseball. Like you know, we had a couple of dark years in the early '90s for sure. But, you know, when, when I was coming of age, really, we, you know, it was the beginning of the Jeter era, 95, 96. I saw five World Series championships. Um, so, yeah, I was a huge Jeter guy, predating Jeter, actually. My, I had a love affair with Danny Tartable. I don't know, who, who actually also played on the Kansas City Royals. Oh, yeah. I was a big, I was a big Tartable guy, big, big Tartable guy. And then uh, when Jeter came on the scene, like every other kid in New York City, I fell in love with Derek Jeter, our captain. And uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of Jeter stuff. I remember probably my, my, my first purchase I ever made at a Nationals, believe it or not, right, was a game-worn, a game-used Chuck Knobloch bat from his wow. first season when he was on the Yankees. Yeah. So it, was, it was a lot of Yankee stuff growing up for sure. What did you pay for that? I'm trying to think of like favorite <laughs> reference. Was that a thirty dollars? That's a great question. I don't know. But first of all, I was—I don't know. I must have been eight eight years old, so I doubt that I was the one who was paying for. I'll, I'll have to go back and ask my dad. That's fair. <laughs> That's awesome. If you were to go back and and kind of grab a set from growing up, any any set or particular insert or card that you would go back and and, and grab again. I think of me like I love the 90, probably the 96, 97 basketball era with like Fleer, Fleer for me, that's what sticks out the most. But anything in particular for you? It's a fun one. I mean, look, I would, I'd love to go back and gobble up all the 86 Jordans right about now, right? As a, as a little bit of a plug for Collectible, our, asset, our next IPO is coming this Thursday, and we're IPOing a Jordan PSA 10 from 86. So if anyone – like me, who wishes that they could go back in time and gobble up all the PSA 10 Jordans when they were worth very little. Now, now, now's your time to be able to afford another PSA 10 Jordan. But, but you know, as opposed to owning the physical card, you get to own shares of it. There you go. All right, so let, let's get into this because you you're anxious to talk about it. I'm anxious to talk about it. Um, so 
So walk us through a little bit of the origin story of Collectible, and then we'll kind of frame up what's happening right now with Collectible for the listeners so people know what's up. But give us the origin story behind it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's actually a fascinating origin story of Collectible, right? So our business hasn't always been a fractional investment platform. Okay. The company actually was founded in 2014 by a gentleman by the name of David Yokin and Jason Epstein. And the company originally was a sports uh, auction data aggregator. Effectively, you could go on and see where items transacted on auction houses, I believe dating back to the 1970s. Right, so from that, we had we developed all these connections in the industry with auction houses and dealers and collectors. Anyone who was really in the hobby, uh, they knew about us. We knew about them. And it was a really good ride for those guys. We had about 20,000 users. Um, and then, you know, the, the fractional opportunities started becoming viable back in 2018. And Jason Epstein was the guy who led the company from that transition into the fractional space. And he set out for about... 18 months to find a new CEO and to hire a new management team for the business to lead the company through its next chapter in the fractional ownership space. I was just lucky enough to meet Jason at the right time and we, we, we got along and he, he brought me on board to lead the charge back in January of 2020. So we've been working hard to get SEC qualification, to get SEC approved to do what we're doing. And you know we've been able to hire a tremendous really talented team and been able to consign some amazing product, which we've already had the ability to launch for three weeks. Our first offering was a 53 Mickey Mantle uh, PSA 10, one of only two in the world. We sold a million dollars of it in the largest ever sports memorabilia fractional IPO by over $480,000. So it's been it's been a tremendous ride so far. We're, we're just getting going, but it's been fun to see the reaction. It's been fun to see the feedback. And, you know, it's been fun to see how much interest there is in fractional ownership. So we're incredibly excited about the opportunity. And again, just really excited for the industry, for the hobby, for all the stuff that's coming down the pipeline for everybody. I think this is, you know, really just the beginning of what could be an incredible ride for, for the industry for many years to come. Absolutely. So connect the dots then for me from you early 2000s maturing, working. I think you were in finance, right? Were you investment banking, whatever you were doing there. Connect the dots from then until you took over in January. Was there an inkling inside of you that was saying, okay, I got to find a way to get myself into the sports world or the sports hobby world because I think there's an opportunity or it just did it just happen and you just. So a little bit about my personal background, right? I did work on Wall Street for 10 years. I was actually at a New York City-based hedge fund. I was analyzing public and private companies in, um, in technology, in consumer, media, sports, and retail. So I worked there for about 10 years. While I was there, I also co-founded the only still in existence and profitable minor league football league and scouting event company while I was there, right? We sent over 400 players back to the NFL, CFL, XFL, AAF. So I had this background of kind of sports entrepreneurship meets financial markets with this overlay of having been around the hobby my entire life, right? So, you know, it was, it was an interesting assortment of things that I had going for me when Collectible was looking for a new CEO. And, you know, like a lot of people who work in finance after a certain, point, a certain time, you just get a little burnt out by it. You want your next opportunity. So again, it was just the right place at the right time. But really what I saw 
was an interesting combination in the memorabilia category, right? It was this really interesting combination of passion and profits, right? People are passionate about sports. They're passionate about the hobby and there's money to be made, right? Like you look at sports cards or sports memorabilia as an investment asset class. And by a lot of studies, it's dramatically outperformed traditional investments like stocks. The problem really has been that the best opportunities for investment, at least, have been at the upper end of the market where average people, average sports fans like you and I have been completely priced out of it. I could never afford to go out and buy a two and a half million dollar Mickey Mantle card. I would love I'd love to have it in my portfolio, but I could never afford to own it outright. Right. So that, you know, that was something that was interesting to me. How can we apply basic and widely accepted financial market principles to this really interesting investment asset class and make this asset class something that could be approachable and affordable for sports fans all across the world? Right. So that was the opportunity that I saw. And, um, you know, I think everything I've seen so far has just led me to believe that this is you know, a really interesting opportunity. I think fractionalization is just getting going. I think the ability for people to invest in the hobby at the high end is just getting going. And I think that this is a really, again, you know, I know I've said this 12 times already, but I really am genuinely excited as someone who's seen this hobby for 30 plus years, I'm genuinely excited for what's to come. I heard this, uh, I heard this amazing or read this amazing tweet from Ravel recently. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, you know, it was a poll and he said, out of the following three industries, which one do you trust the most? Right. It was it was the stock market. Um, it was sports memorabilia and trading cards and fantasy. Sorry. And sports gambling. Right. So those three by a distant third sports memorabilia and trading cards was the least trustworthy out of all those. It was less trustworthy than sports gambling. Right. So to me, that said two things that said, A, that's a problem, right? Like that's a, that, that means we've done a lot of things wrong. We have you know, a lot of areas in which we can improve. But it also said to me, that's a massive opportunity, a massive opportunity to come in, to modernize the industry, to get rid of a lot of the bad actors, to have more integrity of data, to have easier transaction mechanisms, to reduce fees, to make it more regulated, right? So there are a lot of things which we liked about that opportunity. So again, just really excited about what's to come and really excited for collectible, but also really excited for the industry at large. That's interesting. Yeah, and I, I didn't, I'm not sure that's what you're referring to, but I know Ravel's been putting a great amount of content mm -hmm. around sports cards and stuff. So when you, when you see that and when you enter the opportunity in January, did you have that mindset coming in that it's kind of a dirty industry and that this was an opportunity to maybe civilize it a little bit? Or was that kind of a surprising bit of data for you because it's always funny that like, you have a ton of new collectors coming in the hobby these days and it's it's obviously brought up the market as a whole and a lot of them don't realize some of the craziness that happens behind the scenes yeah. Do you yeah, think it wasn't it wasn't overly surprising to me because again you know i my dad is so active in it so sure. you know, i've heard horror stories for him where he bought into things that were fraudulent or not real yeah. Or he dealt with bad actors who took him for a ride. Yeah, yeah like I, I knew about all these things. Obviously, when you really delve deep into it, you, you learn more than you would just hearing it from somebody else, of course, right? 
But yeah. yeah, you know, so it wasn't surprising, but I think it definitely was something that I thought was a massive opportunity. And then, you know, what I didn't quite realize, although I had heard it often growing up, I didn't realize that the returns in the memorabilia and trading card category, at least at the upper end of the market, were as impressive as they were. Hmm. Right? So again, it was this interesting opportunity to really combine passion and profits. And, I, and that's something that we say a lot at Collectible. It's a really interesting opportunity, passion and profits. People are passionate and people can make money in it. And it's also easy for people to understand, right? It's not, it's not rocket science, you know, it's, it's sports, right? So right. It's, it's, those, it's those factors that really were interesting to all of us and was one of the key drivers and collectible our entire team going down this route and doing what we've been doing so far. Yeah. No, for sure. Right. I think that's the beauty of all this, right? We can go when we're done and go watch a player that we've invested yeah. in. And it means right. that I, the, the, the word choice is interesting to me because you're, you're using the word passion and profits. And when I hear that, I think of the, the really the argument that's been festering in the hobby for the last five years. You've seen it, right? The hobbyist versus the new investor. Right. Traditional sure. can't get around this idea that you can, you know, quote, invest in sports cards. Sure. And I'm sure you've had to get around that a little bit. And you're going to continue to have to get around that. Yeah. What is kind of your perspective on sports cards being a true investment? Obviously, considering your background in this yeah. educated response. Look, I, I think I think the data speaks for itself, right? I mean, you know, it's inarguable that there has been a lot of money made in sports cards and sports memorabilia. That's a fact, right? I don't think that's arguable. You know, what is arguable is the manner in which it's been done and who it's been accessible to, right? It's really only been accessible, the best opportunities and the most amount of money has only been accessible to wealthy collectors. That's a fact, right? So, you know, what? it's just an interesting way for us to break down barriers to entry, to democratize the industry, to make this something that people can actually see, I, I potentially could make money in this. Now, you can't guarantee returns like any like any market. It could be cyclical. Things could go up. Things could go down. The economy could, could, you know, could have a big downturn. There are a million things that could happen. It's like any other market. But, you know, just just the ability for common sports fans of all income brackets all across the country to be able to tap into some of the things that has historically been a great place to invest. Right. You know, and again, like as it relates to fractionalization and, you know, the, the old school collectors versus the, the new school investors. You know, we always say that our business is complementary to the hobby in a lot of ways. Right. We're not trying to physically we're not trying to replace physical collecting. All of us. I'm a physical collector. I love, you know, seeing my physical memorabilia. Uh, I like collecting cards myself. Everyone on our management team is the same way. Right. But, you know, the truth is, is we could just never we can never afford to physically own the stuff that we're able to put on collectibles platform. So for us, it's not a substitute, it's just complimentary, right? Like we can physically collect what's in our price range and what's affordable to us and what we love, but we can also invest in the stuff that has historically been really strong investments that we could never afford to own physically. So that's our stance on it. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think there is a, you're right, you, you aren't replacing what people are kind of used to the very, I don't want to say lower level of the hobby because that's not a fair statement, but you know, the, the normal way of collecting isn't being replaced here. I mean, the guys like you or I cannot touch the Jordan rookies and the mantles uh, unless uh, 
we get a little lucky later in life. Um, look, I, think, I think that's something that's that's so cool about breakers, right? And the whole breaking culture too is it's a it's just another way to provide access to people who may never have you know access before. It requires a little bit of luck, sure, but you know it's just you know it's it's an ability to get your hands on things that if you were to purchase a single an individual card, right, you, you might never be able to afford it. So again, it's just these mechanisms, these different ways of creating access to people who would never otherwise be able to afford it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's, it's interesting to, to look back, even just 15 years of the transformation in the hobby, and you nailed it, right? 15 years ago when group breaking was basically introduced, it took a couple years and then it started kind of integrating itself into the hobby and becoming accepted in the norm and, and normal traditionalists didn't despise every breaker. I know there's a whole group of them that still do. Uh, and then it's, it's interesting too, just the last couple of years seeing you got, you know, all the digital components of the hobby, the blockchain, the digital te technologies that Panini and Tops are both trying to integrate into the collectibles. So I don't, I, it's, I don't know if, if collectible.com would have been able to fit into where we were three years ago, but it seems like right now it's just a, it's just kind of a perfect segue into what you're doing. So, so talk a little bit about. Um, the sweet spot, because I know you mentioned certain cards and, and, and I've looked through the upcoming IPOs, right? There's, a, I think, a group of 30 Kawhi Leonard PSA 10 Prism Silvers. What's the sweet spot in terms of value and number of fractional owners that you're kind of aiming for? Sure. Yeah, you know, the, the sweet spot for us, right, the average value that we project of our IPOs will be somewhere roughly of $60,000 per offering. Now, we could have some offerings that are dramatically more than that. Our first offering was a Mickey Mantle 53 PSA 10. Right? The total value there was $2.5 million. Right? So there obviously will be some that will be significantly more expensive than 60, but we, we project roughly it'll net out somewhere around the $60,000 average. Right? We, we need a certain threshold for our fee structure to be economical and makes sense, right? Because we're a regulated and qualified entity by the SEC, there are fixed costs to our business. There's legal fixed costs, there's broker-dealer fixed costs, right? So there's insurance and, and all, all that's the storage, right? So there are fixed costs to our business. So unless an item really is roughly $20,000 or more, the, the fee structure just gets a little out of whack. But in terms of the, the, you know, the types of items, you know, again, we're looking for really uh, interesting, both historically, culturally significant items, ones that have scarcity and rarity to them, ones that have growth prospects for investors, right? We're looking for just premier athletes who are highly investable. We're going to target sports all across the bracket, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, golf, Olympics, you name it. We want to provide a breadth and depth of offerings for fractional investors. And you know what I can say very safely and confidently is a lot of the items that we're going to be putting on the platform are items that in many cases, the sports memorabilia category has never seen transact before. Right. Hmm. So I think we're really interesting. If you're into this hobby, you're, you're, you're going to want to keep your eyes on us for the next couple of months. No, that's exciting. So I, I know when you're investing in a stock, right? You're a fractional owner of the company. But the beautiful thing about a stock, right? Is there's a, there's a secondary market where you can trade that, that share. 
what is it going to look like then for the secondary market for collectible? And, and really, what does that look like if I am an owner in this upcoming, you know, Michael Jordan IPO? What, what are my options there? Yeah. So the way we're doing it is when you make a purchase or an investment, there's a 90 day lockup period, at which point you're not able to transact. After okay. those 90 days are up, you'll be able to buy, sell uh, and trade your interest just like you would a stock. We'll have a secondary market through our application, right? You know, our goal is to be able to provide people with liquidity, to be able to get their money in and out, to buy more, to take advantage of trends, to capitalize. Perhaps there are some good buying opportunities if players, you know, have short-term hiccups, right? So, yeah, we we anticipate and our hope is that this will become a liquid secondary marketplace where people can log on to our application at all times of the day, seven days a week, uh, and be able to invest and trade and just have a lot of fun with this hobby. That's beautiful. Okay, so 90-day lockup period. And at that point, within the secondary period, the, the platform inside the collectible app, you'll be able to buy and sell those trades. So if you do miss out on IPO, there's a there's a possibility you could pop in and, and buy and get out of that. Okay. Correct. At what point then do you, and I'm, I'm assuming there's opportunities where you'll, the, the price appreciates so much where you want to offload the asset Yep. What, what is that? Is that kind of in the cards? What's the process? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're, we're always evaluating and entertaining offers to, you know, for people to acquire the stuff on our platform. Okay. Right? Um, you know, I think, I think that's a little bit of a push and pull, obviously, you know, we want people to, to have the ability to, you know, have their own free will to not have things sold out from under them just because there's some need for the company to generate some profits. Right. So it's a little bit of a push and pull, but yeah, we'll, we're always entertaining acquisition offers for our stuff. We fully anticipate that there will be offers to acquire a lot of our stuff. A lot of our stuff is things that many collectors would love to have in their portfolio and their PC. The process is that once we receive an acquisition offer, we'll take a shareholder vote, right? So we'll empower shareholders with the ability to say, yes, I want to sell at that price or no, I don't want to sell at the price. If the majority of investors are interested in selling it, it'll get passed up to our advisory committee. Our advisory committee are some of the most knowledgeable appraisers, authenticators, hobbyists there is, and they'll ultimately have the final say. That advisory committee is an important part really to protect shareholders and to make sure that there's no foul play. Um, but yeah, ultimately if it gets through a shareholder vote and our advisory committee approves it, we can accept a tender offer, an acquisition offer, and pay out investors in each offering pro rata to their ownership position. Love it. If you're listening to this and not excited, I don't know what to tell you. Cause it's, you've got, you've got every I dotted and every T crossed. <laughs> um, you sparkling water guy. I've been promoting. I am. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that a flavored sparkling water? It's a Kirkland signature Costco. Very yeah. Good. Very good. Very good um, all right. So let's say I, I do have a card that I want to sell to collectible, but I, well, I'm just thinking like in terms of selling a business, right? I, I want to remain kind of a vested owner in my business is what is the process for me to sell something to you guys and, and still be a part of the process? What, what a, yeah, yeah. That's one thing that collectible felt really strongly about is the ability to allow sellers to retain some ownership in the items that they're consigning to collectible. We've all had that experience where we've sold things because we needed money or we needed, we want to trade in and out of the hobby. 
there, there might be a better short-term opportunity, whatever, right? I've had that experience both in collectibles and in stocks. There have been stocks that, you know, if I, you bought Amazon at a thousand bucks per share and it went up to 2000, you know, it'd be great to take some profits, but you also think Amazon might continue to go up in the future, right? Up until collectible, really, there's no way to sell partial interest or at least a liquid way to sell partial interest in a collectible, right? So that it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And you know, I think that additional seller flexibility has allowed us to get our hands on supply that we never otherwise would have gotten our hands on. So that, again, that the ability for sellers and consigners to retain partial equity and ownership of the items really allows us to bring the best possible pipeline to fractional owners. As it relates to you know, how we actually acquire or consign items, we typically consign them. Uh, there, there could be cases where we acquire it if we just think it's you know, mispriced or we think that there's an opportunity or a particular seller just needs a cash advance in order to get it done. We have the ability to opportunistically acquire items if we deem that to be appropriate, but you know, we're typically consigning items from sellers. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. You think about nowadays, right? Where you, you do have a, a card bubble, whatever you want to call it, right? Price has gone up considerably in the card market. You think about guys that ha- have high end and they want to reduce their exposure to the risk. It makes perfect sense, right? There's a great opportunity for you to stay in the game, but take advantage of some of the high prices. You've thought about it. Um, I love it. So when you, when you were looking at kind of the correlation of this asset class versus other other asset classes. And, and, and maybe, I don't know, we look at the stock market and how it's correlated with, with sports cards or fine art, whatever we may be. What, in your experience, what is sports cards in that market as a whole cl- most resembling in terms of asset classes? That's a really great question. A really great question, right? Yeah, I think one other thing that we've identified as an opportunity is to really do a much better job in terms of capturing data, right? There's not overly consistent or reliable data in this space. There really just isn't. I think there are a couple of players who are innovating and capturing data significantly better. But overall, it's, it's tough to find reliable data from which you can say, I, I, I think that that's correct. You know, the, the closest thing that I've seen really is the art market, right? I don't know that it's a perfect comp, but I think it's probably the best one there is. You look at correlations of the art market historically against the stock market, and it's 0.13. In layman terms, what that means is it's just not that correlated to the stock market, right? So typically, you know, if the market is going down, the, the art market might be more stable. If the art market is going up, you know, it, it's just not moving completely in trend with it. People think that that's a great thing because it allows them to diversify away from, you know, just you know, the risk of the market at large. One thing that we've seen in the sports memorabilia and trading category, and I think this is probably a big part of it, and I'm sure this is not a new theory, but there, there is this you know, sense of emotional attachment, of nostalgia, and just you know, a broader understanding of what exactly memorabilia is and what cards are. And for whatever reason, it just leads to people in times of economic stress selling their collectibles less frequently than they perhaps would a stock. Right. So, yeah, there again, you know, the correlation data that we've seen closest to is probably the art market. Certainly not a perfect comp, but probably the closest thing that we have at the moment. One of our missions for collectible is to do a much better job with data capture. And we're going to have a lot of data points to our secondary market. That's interesting. Yeah, that is a funny point. 
because you do look at historical data around art, you know, fine art. Yep. And you would think during depressions or economic turmoil, that market would take a hit. And you're right. The it, it means something. The sentimental value means a lot more than you realize. And I think it's a, that's an interesting correlation in the sports and, and that's not to say that, of course, you know, in, 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 in poor economic conditions, that's not to say that, you know, the art market doesn't decline or the sports collectible sure. industry doesn't decline. Of course it does, right? But, you know, it might decline less or it just might be uncorrelated. So, you know, again, from, from the historical data, that's not to say that it'll always be the case, but from the historical data, it seems like people tend to hold on to their collectibles more than they hold on to their stocks uh, in times of economic stress. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so talk to me then about the future, and it, this can be short term. Uh, mm -hmm. Take the question however you want. Um, what's a perfect case scenario for you in terms of volume? So mm -hmm. obviously IPOs are it's, it's a big thing. I think about it in terms yeah. of the stock market world or yeah. collective world. What's ideal case scenario? Every day you have a new release. Per week, right, right, right. Yeah, look, you know, I think our only mission right now is to bring the, the best and the most amount of supply to the fractional space. We think it's a really cool opportunity to be able to provide, yep, you know, opportunities to invest in stuff that people would never otherwise be able to afford. Right? We, you know, you may have seen some of the press about us when we first launched. We have thirty million dollars worth of stuff under consignment already, and you know, just by sheer virtue of us being in the market. And having yeah. received some press, we're getting new stuff by the day, right? So you know we're we're not going to overly flood the market. We definitely want to prioritize quality. We want to prioritize you know things that meet our strict criteria for listing on the platform. But you know we want we do want breadth. We want depth. We want options. Sure. You know, as you know better than anyone, right? Like collectors come in all different shapes, sizes, and, and interests. One person might be interested in vintage baseball. Someone else's interested in modern basketball, right? So there's there's all different types of interests and we want to at least be able to provide something for everybody. Hmm. So where, where do you guys stand in terms of bringing in wax? So sealed wax, or do you have a cutoff in terms of we're not going to have modern day cards until they reach a certain point of maturity? What's kind of the uh, thesis? We're, we're pretty opportunistic. We're pretty flexible. Again, we have a lot of connections in the hobby, auction houses. We have partnerships with auction houses, with dealers, with collectors, with athletes. So I, I wouldn't really limit ourselves to one particular thing. We are focused strictly on sports. So we are strictly, you know, we, we, we draw the barrier for now on sports at least. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that there is a limit to the types of stuff that we could have, right? Again, we want to we wanna be as experimental as possible. We want to provide the most amount of offerings as possible. And, you know, again, collectors come in all, you know, shapes, sizes, and interests. And so we'd like to be able to have as much for as many different interest types as possible. <laughs> I love it. You're polished. You got the, you got the politically correct answer. You're well around. I love it. Uh, uh, so I, I did see that. Was it Emmett Smith was your first? Your first Emmett, Emmett Smith, yeah. He's our first uh, athlete ambassadorship. He's also uh, an investor in our business. Okay. Smith is coming at this from two interesting angles. One is, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't know about Emmett Smith. Emmett has his own authentication company called Provo. So in, in, an interesting you know, thing there, you know, he started that because he realized for too long that there were lots of concerns about forgeries. He saw it firsthand. He'd go to these shows, he'd be signing stuff that were proclaiming to be game-worn Emmett Smith items that he realized, I, I, 
I never wore this helmet or or pants or jersey, right? So, you know, he was incentivized and motivated by just the sheer amount of bad actors and forgeries to create his own authentication company to help stop that, right? So he's coming at this from an authentication angle. He thinks collectible, the fact that it's SEC qualified and items go through a pretty stringent process before coming on our platform. He thought that that was, you know, really advancing the ball forward when it comes to authentication. He's also coming at it from an interesting you know, athlete related opportunity. You know, I think what, what we've seen across a lot of different athlete uh, sport opportunities is athletes are connecting directly with their fans, right? Kind of cutting out the middleman, communicating and sharing experiences uh, and items directly with their fans. He thinks collectible is a really interesting opportunity to, you know, bring his own collection and to bring other prominent athletes to the table with their own, you know, collection of stuff to allow athletes who shared in his career and all their careers, the ability to invest and to own in some of the items that have the most meaning to him. So we're gonna be putting a lot of Emmett Smith items on the platform. Uh, this is a little bit private, but I'll share it with you tonight. Uh, the first item he'll be putting on the platform will be the jersey that he wore when he broke the NFL all-time rushing record in 2002. So a pretty cool item of his, something that obviously has a lot of meaning to him. and he wants to share it directly with the fan base. And he identified Collectible as the platform to do just that. Yeah, see, that is an interesting kind of angle we don't think about. And I'm glad you brought it up because Emmett, I'm assuming he's going to retain some degree of ownership of that still, right? He he can allow us to participate in owning that that jersey, but yet he can still retain it, which is a, which is a pretty cool right. thing. Pretty cool thing. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. You know, and, and again, you know, I think you know, everyone always talks about, you know, you want to physically see it and hold it. And that and that's right. like the real collector in us. You know, but the truth is, is how many of us own high valuable collectibles that just sitting in a closet or a vault <laughs> somewhere? Right. But it's not like you're you're constantly breathing it or seeing it. Right. It's you know, it typically is in a secure location if it's something that's of that kind of value. So in theory, it's not that different from consigning it over to collectible. We store it. We vault it. And we allow other people to invest in it while the athlete gets some liquidity up front for it. Yeah. We're, we're three cases in on certain cards, right? You're a, you're a sleeve into a top loader, into a one touch, into like these fireproof cases now. <laughs> uh, couldn't agree more. You know, another thing about Emmett Smith, I'm sure he would just be annoyed with all of the, uh, you know, the game, the draft day t-shirt relics that they're putting on. He's there probably like, come on, man. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so what, uh, tell me a little bit about your perspective going forward uh, of the sports card hobby in general, right? We, we, we kind of hinted towards this at the beginning. You know, yeah. you started in January. You could probably look back in history and say the nine month window that you've been a part of collectible is maybe the most aggressive <laughs> in the sports car world era that we've seen. What's kind of your perspective from now for the next six months, let's say? What are you what are you thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I wish I had a crystal ball, of course, to, you know, to see how this all shakes out. I've heard compelling arguments on both sides. There are people who think we're in a bubble and prices are out of control. And there are people who think this industry is just getting started. Right. So I, I probably fall somewhere in between. I think there will always be like any market. There's always opportunities. There's always, you know, other areas of the market that pose more risk, right? You know, I, one thing I can say and speak to firsthand is there's a lot of money coming into this space, perhaps for the first time. 
right? Real institutional money, people who are looking at this as an investment, perhaps for the first time. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of interesting things happening and that is attracting more money to the industry, which perhaps could be driving some of the asset values, right? And you hear influencers of all shapes and sizes saying that sports cards in particular are this generation's form of art, right? It's hard to know what to make of that, but you know, what's inarguable is the fact that people have been calling for a bubble for a couple of years now. I remember when we first joined Collectible, when I first joined Collectible in 2020, uh, in January 2020, I remember seeing tweets and reading about this and everyone's saying, oh, this, this hobby's in a bubble and prices are overinflated. And, you know, you, you look at what's happened since and prices have only gone more and more parabolic from there. If there's one thing that I've learned from my 10 years on Wall Street is that people generally are horrible about predictions, right? <laughs> so I have no clue what's coming. I wish I did. You can make a lot of money if you could forecast the future. But what I do know is that what I love about collectible, at least, is we're a marketplace just like any other marketplace, right? Sure. So if prices decline, tremendous. That will set up better opportunities for future investment down the road. If prices decline on our marketplace, which could happen, right, then people who have more of a long-term view and who are able to really cipher out the noise might have great opportunities for, for the long-term investment, right? So, you know, I, I think like any marketplace, there will always be opportunities There'll always be areas to avoid. It's impossible to tell exactly where we are in the cycle. There is a lot of money coming into it for, you know, perhaps for the first time. This industry is not that deep. You have a couple major institutional players. That alone can take up prices at the top end. So, again, it's, it's my way of saying I really have no clue what's going to happen, but I do think Collectible will stand to benefit and provide opportunities for people short-term, long-term, and be in a position to offer those kind of uh, investing opportunities for people, again, all income brackets, all across the country in an area where people otherwise would have been completely priced out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So throw the crystal ball out then. If you mm -hmm. could wave your magic wand that I know you probably have sitting right behind you uh, and you could fix something in the hobby. Mm -hmm. Fix. It's a great question. That's a great question. I mean, look, the, the, the obvious thing that comes to mind, right, is, you know, look, I think the grading companies have obviously done a far better job of providing a standardized grading system. It's not perfect, of course, right? I think further efforts, and I'm sure all the grading companies are on top of it. I know there are a couple, you know, newer players who are coming in with a far more digital focus. But, you know, I think just any ways that this industry can continue to give consumer confidence, investor confidence, collector confidence, any way that we can continue to strip out the bad actors and give people more um, you know, of a sense of what they're investing in or buying is legit. I think that that's just going to open up this industry to, again, different people, different players, and just be, be for the good of the entire hobby. So again, I just think it's, you know, continuing to take strides forward in authentication and integrity and trust and uh, and really just be able to you know share all the good things about this hobby that you and I both love. I'm sure all of your audience loves, right? We all love this hobby, want to grow this hobby together. But in order to do it, I think we need a significant better job in terms of consumer confidence, investor confidence, collector confidence. And you know, I think Collectible is just one of probably a handful of companies who luckily will be in a position to really advance the ball forward there. Mm, that's great. That's, that's a good response. Um, 
Interesting. Yeah. There, I don't think there's, there's probably a, a number of things we could fix, but I think the transparency is probably the biggest thing for sure. Um, my last question then. In, in, yeah. If you could change one thing about the hobby, what, what would that be? Um, I would say I, I would reduce the number of products being printed. Hmm. I would kind of rein the hobby back in for a little bit and weather the storm and kind of make sure we're, hmm. we've got some, uh, We've got some consistency. The the moving to thirty five releases a year, I think, only it only confuses and waters down, which is a pretty good thing happening right now. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a really interesting point too. When I was getting back in the hobby back in, you know, probably November of last year, when I was evaluating yeah. this opportunity, you know, I knew all about the trading card space. I grew up in the in the industry, but it was confusing. It was confusing to to figure out all the series and, you know, all the manufacturers and all the different things people can invest in. So yeah, I think that that's not a, not, not a bad place to start as well. Yeah. It's interesting because people, you could, you could run the numbers and people have done this and you could say print runs actually aren't that high for certain products. You think right. about the tops flagships, the Panini prisms, they're, they're not incrementally as high as you think year over year. But what these manufacturers are doing is they're just diluting it by putting out 25 different products, you know, and they'll <laughs> they'll make their money. Right? They have their on-demand products and they got 48 different versions of, a, you know, of a prism now that you can get. It's uh, it's a little bit, I don't want to say deceiving, but it's, it's pretty cloudy when it comes to new collectors and figuring out what the heck to do. So um, data. I'm a data guy. I love all the data, uh, the analytics. Sure. Um, Tell me about what needs to be done to kind of solve the data issue with sports cards. And I mean, it can be as simple as um, it's, it's really hard to decipher what's happening with sales data on eBay because there's no listing like formatting and structure that everyone's accepted to like, we just don't have enough data. Um, right. Where do you kind of fall on like, what's your response to the data issue with sports cards? Yeah, I think I think you just probably nailed both of of the key points, right? It's the credibility of the data, filtering it to make sure that what's being included is legitimate. And yeah. it's also probably the volume of data points, right? So, you know, what I love about the secondary market feature for not not just collectible, for other companies, Rally Road is another one who has a secondary market, other companies will have a secondary market as well. It'll just provide more more data points that are transparent that are daily, you can slice and dice it, you can analyze it, you can create indices off of it. One thing that we're looking into is you can create you know, different baskets of stuff, similar to in the public markets, you have ETFs or mutual funds, which if you just wanna invest in the industry, but you don't necessarily wanna pick individual cards or individual you know, stocks, for instance, you'll be able to you know, buy a portfolio of stuff, right? So I think, I think that there's just a lot of blocking and tackling, which could, be done a lot of basic financial market principles that could be applied to this industry. And, you know, the, the narrative of sports collectibles as an investment asset class, I can tell you from all my conversations, that's not going anywhere. I think that, that that's only going to become more and more standardized, more and more legitimized. And, yeah. you know, I, I think because of that, because you have players like ourselves, we're bringing this financial markets approach to it. You know, the beauty of it is you're going to see significantly better data significantly better data. And that's just gonna benefit everyone, everyone, right? When it comes to figuring out what something's worth, uh, it's just, uh, the, it'll just lead to much cleaner, much more reliable data. And, you know, I think that that's something that, 
just as a hobbyist myself, someone who's grown up in it. I'm excited about that ability to kind of provide that data transparency. Beautiful. Well, I don't know where people sit in the spectrum of investing and collecting and in the hobby, but but everything that's happening at Collectible, in, in my perspective, is is in, incredibly needed in the hobby. So I, I appreciate yeah. you being Thanks. on the show. So I, I like to end on something we call rapid fire. So we're doing a little bit different. I'm going to give you five different words. And all you're going to do is you're going to give me the immediate word that comes to mind when you hear it. Okay. Sure. Try me. Go with that. All right. Derek Jeter. Captain. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg. Stud. Oh, all right. Netflix. Netflix and chill. <laughs> okay. Dave Portnoy. Davey Day Trader. I would say controversial, but a tremendous entrepreneur. Okay. Lotion. Lotion? Lotion. I would say it's much, much needed. <laughs> well played. Well played. Ezra, man, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun to be here. All right. All right Take care. You. Bye.